Welcome to Surviving Society Presents The Global Power of the British Monarchy. In these episodes, we'll be looking to challenge existing conversations about the British monarchy. Often in popular discourse, the monarchy is taken for granted as part of British culture. With expert guests, the podcast tells a story of the other side of monarchy, from its links to empire and colonialism, to issues of wealth accumulation and nationalism, the series sets out to disrupt common sense understandings and undertake a critical analysis of the firm and its various intersections with inequality. This series has been executively produced by Laura Clancy. In this episode, we're looking more broadly at elite studies. There are particular risks and limitations of studying up. For example, not being able to get access to your participants, university ethics procedures which assume that the participants and not the researcher are vulnerable, and cases where wealthy individuals and companies have sued researchers and journalists. So we want to think about why this matters for sociologists and why we need to look at the system so we can hold the powerful to account. I'm joined for this episode by Emily Hoyle, Uditra Punaya and Perry Ayling. Emily, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this episode. So I'm a PhD researcher, and I'm looking at transhumanist imaginaries. I'm particularly interested in power and culture, looking at how gender, race, and class is part of the making of bringing transhumanist imaginaries into being. Thank you. Uditra? Uh, Hi everyone, I'm a sociologist by training, and I'm a wealth Inequality and Elite Studies Fellow at the Southern Centre for Inequality Studies at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. I have worked on India and now I currently work on South African elites. Thank you. Pere? Hello, I am Pere Elin, a Senior Lecturer and Researcher at University of Suffolk in Ipswich, England. Uh, I'm sociologist by trade and my research um, I'm generally interested in social justice research and look specifically at elites and uh, the consumption of international schoolings by elites. I've done research specifically on Nigerian elites and and look at their educational choices when it comes to the kind of schools they send their children to and the reasons and the motives behind that decision. Great. So, I mean, part of the reason I invited all of you because we're all we're all doing elite studies but we're doing very different versions of that I think and across different um, geographical areas around the world as well which I think will make for quite interesting comparison. Um, Ujitra can I start with you can I ask you you know in your experiences what are the particular risks of undertaking this research um, and where you feel the pressures are? Um, Sure Laura so as I mentioned that my doctoral research looked at Um, a business caste in Delhi and I was interested in looking at their strategies of reproduction in the urban. Um, You know, I was doing fieldwork till about the mid of 2018 and uh, since 2014 there has been a shift in government and we have a a Hindu majoritarian government. We used to be the largest uh, democracy in the world and now our international classification has moved to becoming an elected autocracy. Um, And that shifts things in terms of what you can write about, what you can research, what you can put out. So uh, the government has had a particular kind of move towards select business groups. Now I do know of people in India who have studied these big corporations and would not be able to put their work out. 
Uh, as far as your criticism of neoliberalism goes, I think that's tolerated to a large extent, I would say, still there's a possibility of it. But if you're researching things which goes to the heart of the making of this fascist power, which is to look at caste, gender, um, you know, anything in that direction would be considered sensitive. I would say that still within academics, there could be a scope of writing it in particular ways, but one would still be worried about how it gets translated in popular media, uh, what parts of your work gets highlighted. And it's a, it's a particularly tricky time for academics, journalists, anybody in civil society in general, leave alone people researching elite studies. But I think for the small group of us who are doing this work, um, it is but more sensitive. And I mean, Pere, you're researching in a, a very different geographical location. Are there some of the same risks for you with your participants? It's slightly different risk. My participants were a form, first and foremost uh, economic elites. And um, at the time I did my research, when I was doing my research, and it's still the case right, actually right now in Nigeria, there was a lot of uh, focus on the, the rich. Uh, and, and there is this organization called EFCC, and it's an organization that actually uh, probes the rich and, and look at how they have their money, and, and, and especially, you know, those who are politicians who are very, very wealthy. They, there is a lot of kind of scrutiny of how have you made your money in Nigeria as at the time I was doing my research. And this is actually heightened at the moment right now. So the risk of researching economic and political elites in Nigeria is that you may not get access to them because they, you know, they don't want to be scrutinized. They, they are wary of uh, who you are and to, to really trust that you are not somebody that is actually working for the government or for that particular organization and you're genuinely a student. That is kind of some of the risk I experienced then, but I can see anybody wanting to, to research the elites in Nigeria, especially, as I said, the economic and political elites, they will have that difficulties because there is a lot of interest in them, that group anyway. Yeah, it, and you know, in terms of how much you got, where do you get your money from, and so on, so, and so forth, which will, in some cases, result in the seizure of their and confiscation of their wealth if they if they have been gotten in kind of ill-gotten manner so so that's kind of the risk that i faced uh going into the field earlier when i was doing my research i think that's really key i think you phrased that really well there it's people who don't want to be researched and it's people who don't want things found out emily i know that's come up for you <laughs> yeah and i think again it's that idea of what what you're researching or what you're trying to find out and thinking about power relations and gender race and caste being those sensitivities as mentioned so I always think risk is sort of a methodological struggle for elite research or those who study up or study power because you're exposing and examining various risks and power relations that you're positioned in but in new ways so your participants aren't are powerful they're not powerless but then you also are engaged in more of power struggles that's how I've thought about it um, and thinking about even entering spaces that you might not belong to and not be welcomed into the physical risks that they pose were part of my thinking as well so when I was thinking about doing my um, field work part of my consideration was doing partial covert observations which 
raises all sorts of ethical dilemmas but for me it felt like a way to navigate risk as well so not everyone knowing who I was in that space but again there is the risk of being exposed as a researcher or being exposed as a researcher that is looking at gender and how that can actually have hostilities particularly for women who research men there's quite a lot of sociological research that's already examined those risks as well so I was really aware of being a woman and still am aware of being a woman researching men but also trying not to render myself as this innocent subject as well that I'm somehow vulnerable because I'm researching men because I can also have advantages in terms of my class position and my whiteness as well. I think that brings us you know nicely to think about the kind of methodologies that we use I guess so I mean with my research I, I didn't get access <laughs> so unsurprisingly to people from the monarchy um, so thinking about what kind of methodologies we can use I guess to explore those different communities and how we might have to think you know slightly differently you know if you know my research essentially is kind of look at an organization or an institution and the, the normal way to do that would be to ask for interviews or to ask to what you know look at people and observe people and of course I never got access to any of that so thinking about how you know we need to change our methods I suppose in order to access these these communities in order to get access to what we need because I guess another risk is if you do get interviews with them they just tell you what they want you to hear and I guess that's the risk of all research in a way but there's a particular as you were saying Emily there's a particular power relation when it comes to elites in terms of what they want to represent. I wanted to come in about what Perry was saying earlier about Nigeria and there being scrutiny about who's the one who's making amassing money, right? And how that makes it difficult. I feel in South Africa, you know, the whole Gupta regime and there was a Zondo commission and they're constantly whistleblowers. And I feel like it's easier to do research here because you would be considered as one of those voices. Uh, in terms of dissemination, I feel, uh, you know, what I was outlining earlier about the risks of doing it in India, here it feels safer on that accord. But of course, the troubles of uh, accessing them then increase because some of them don't want to speak to you, but the others do. What That's what I'm finding now, because I feel they seem to have their own reasons and rationales and moral justifications for what they do and how they justify what is understood as corruption. And they seem quite willing to speak about it. But um, going to what Emily is saying about, you know, the question of power and being a woman studying men, um, I think that's, that's so central in many ways because I feel like when I was researching in India, because this was a business class, they're known to be conservative, they are, it's a family-oriented setup, these are family businesses. There's a particular kind of fashioning that I did which was, to portray the family part of my being more centrally Um, and in that way I could try and strike some kind of a kin, a distant kin from a different land. Um, But uh, this question here in South Africa is harder because you're working within a prescribed sexual economy which slots you um, and you know there are the dangers of then entering these spaces which are male dominated um, absolutely stand out. When we talk about um, the other slant of doing research with elite or any group, the the gender slants and and the ethnicity uh, uh, caste slants, add uh, additional kind of risk or additional make it more complex to get access and all of that. My research, um, whilst Ujitra, is similar in the sense that I did get access eventually uh, to my participant, and I you know like. Um, 
it's been already said is you know you have to come up with creative ways of getting access but with access also comes i feel uh, we'll probably get to that point later on but i feel that my own consideration where these are parents and so they give you access to them so they are elite but they are elite parents and i've been uh, given access to to come to and uh, to speak to them and get their own side of the story as it were it's, and and it is about power emilia said that it's about power when we're doing research and, and and kind of power struggle but if one were to look at it when you after gathering the data and i did in my case like okay i know that this is about social justice and I, I know that this is about uh, kind of revealing how elites try to maintain power. But I also was very conscious that I need to also look at it from the lens of parent-child relation. And, and, and that allows me, I think, do a better research. Because sometimes there is a temptation that when you're studying elites, because after all, they are, you know, right you know i don't know whether everybody will agree they are more likely to be the perpetuators of inequality they create inequality through their own actions intentionally or intentionally they at the very least they are the ones that benefit for so from social inequalities even if they did not necessarily directly create it so they they are have the power they are the ones that are in privileged position so there is a temptation to go in and or i can actually call it a risk of doing research with elites with the intention of revealing, of exposing them. And, and the risk with that is that you may just be blinkered in your analysis because it's all, all to you about social justice. And in this case, to, you, know, you could justify that the end justified the means. But I was careful, I was mindful of that. Perhaps because I, I, I am a parent myself, I don't know. I'm just trying to reflect why I felt the need to also it's, you know, my result was still, you know, the same. And it's, my conclusions were the same. It's about struggle. It's about maintaining ad this, uh, advantage and all of that. Their choices they were making, but by by looking very broadly and looking at the, the the data from different lenses, I think I was able to do a proper, uh, you know, more valid, more, uh, uh, you know. So that there is a risk too, that if we're not, if if we take it to personal there, there's a risk of of doing the research at all costs and and regardless of whether our participants are, are come to some kind of harm even if that is not physical harm some kind of uh, or not represented in, in in completely or we are not putting the complete story out there there's something really interesting there though isn't there around how we go into our research with our own politics. For instance, I am, you know, I don't make a secret of the fact that I'm a Republican, that I don't think we should have a monarchy. So, of course, that does, you know, colour the way I kind of go into that research already because I've kind of already got, it's almost like you've got your conclusions before you start. So there's something really interesting how we kind of engage with these communities who we might, you know, politically have a real issue with and then how we kind of design a study around that not in terms of giving them more power to represent themselves, because I kind of feel like they have that already. Like our job is maybe to expose something that isn't exposed, but in terms of us not kind of not coming to pre, you know, pre thought out conclusions in a way, just because that pre-decided by our own politics before we go in. Yeah, I was wrestling with this, with whether or not I sort of expose my feminist politics and 
if I don't expose my feminist politics, then what happens there? What what goes unseen or invisible? So I was trying to come up with a resolution. I think I decided that I wouldn't expose it or I wouldn't try to expose what I was... I was researching transhumanism, but I wasn't necessarily looking at gender. Um, to trying to negate access, data collection and risk to myself as well. So, as I mentioned, I was hoping to do partial covert observations. But then part of me getting an ethics approval was also saying if I was approached and asked, I would have revealed that I was a researcher. So then that was the moment for me was saying, well, how much do I reveal? How much of my politics do I reveal? That would eventually is going to be revealed in, in my writing. Even within the writing of the thesis, you're still wrestling with the politics of knowledge making, especially when you're, you're studying those with power. I think that's something I've always struggled with in terms of what you tell these people you're researching, how you frame it, because there's a risk and I've kind of had this. I can't think what it was in. It was in something I'd written and I got some feedback. I can't think what, but it was essentially like, well, aren't you just tricking them, really? Like you're telling them this thing and aren't you kind of tricking them into doing your research? I didn't see it as tricking. But like if we don't kind of slightly change the way we frame it to them, then we're not going to get access at all. So there's something in kind of how we frame that in order to be ethical, of course, we want to be ethical as researchers, but also to, you know, we need access to these communities that are inherently secretive and they're inherently not going to engage with something that they feel might pose a risk to them. Laura, I don't think that is unique to kind of elite studies in terms of how we phrase. Like I was in that particular research uh, that I did, I was lucky in the sense that I was genuinely just wanting to understand the motives behind their, their school choices. I had genuinely no agenda as such in terms of, but I, I, I kind of knew that they were having, they have access to better education. I, I went with uh, a bit furious that, you know, look, looking at Nigerian education system, I, I came from that system. I went to primary school in Nigeria, I went to secondary school in, in Nigeria, and I went to government school. And those who, Nigerians who go to government school, if you tell somebody that, you know, somebody went to, not the... Uh, because there are some certain government schools that are uh, kind of founded in the uh, colonial and early colonial times. So they are kind of more, uh, you know, established, your kind of grammar school uh, British equivalent. But I didn't go to those kind. I went to basic local government school, not federal government, local government. So in terms of hierarchy, they are the, the, the least of the least. So I've been through that experience and I've seen it firsthand how poor, uh, the, kind of, the poor quality of education that the, the, the poor get in Nigeria. So I kind of went in doing this research already, I think, fuming that, you know, tell me why and what kind of education, how much do you pay for your ch children to go to the very, very best? So. So some degree, I kind of was an angry researcher wanting to know what type of education you're getting, because I know that the poor are getting nothing. But so in terms of phrasing my, my, my I just just told them why, you know, why do you choose the schools that you choose? Sending your primary school age child to a private boarding school in the UK um, when they are very expensive private boarding schools in Nigeria. So I really was intrigued by that. So I didn't necessarily need needed to phrase my question in any way because that was literally what I was interested in doing and that's what I told them. But in terms of um, 
what uh, Emily touched on in that kind of that struggle for me came more when I was doing my analysis because some of the things they told me I never expected to hear I expected them to just tell me things like oh it's better quality and all of that but when they start talking and then they start equating quality for Britishness and, and quality with with Britishness with whiteness that start troubling me because I never for the uh, never expected that to be part of my data that whiteness and Britishness would be a, 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 a kind of the, the running theme throughout and that was when I had to sit back and that caused me uh, a, a really very uncomfortable listening to them tell me and then reading it as a raw data in front of me and that's when I guess I had to tell myself look if I if I don't check myself I will just you know it's good to check check oneself and look at it from different angles so I use Bourdieu in my research I use Fanon in my research but I also like thought okay is there something else coming through and there was something else around parental uh, love and parental responsibility and these parents were also saying as well as saying so many things they were saying they make these choices as a result of their love for their children and you know they talk about the sacrifice for their children and and they talk about their responsibility as parents so i i had to i had to address that and i had to say well you know ask myself as a parent would i not do anything for my child if i have the means but then the analysis, you know, also ended up, it's about struggle, class struggle, it's about men. So they were still doing what I suspected. But by, by looking at it from every angle, I justified my conscience that I wasn't trying to just portray them as kind of calculative, strategic, mean spirit. You, do you get my point? I, was, I put all the, the picture out there, but the result, the conclusion was the same. This is about way one of the ways by which they can continue to maintain their advantage so it's about kind of representing the different experiences of that whilst kind of still coming within your own kind of conclusions about what that might mean um, yes not my own conclusion the data was you know i use yes. it uh, yeah. yeah so yeah but yeah the data still show that it is what i suspected but by opening up and looking at every possible scenario i think i did uh, you know, justice to the, to the data. You know, before I started studying up, I spent most of my life working with marginalized populations in India. And I think the politics has always been a politics of care, and that hasn't shifted if the subject has moved from the marginalized to the elite. And um, I feel that maybe perhaps because I'm older now and I'm more comfortable in my own skin now that I've moved to South Africa here, I initially started by perhaps invisibilizing a little bit around the motive. So for example, I would say inequality, and I wouldn't specify wealth inequality, or I would miss out inequality and say I'm researching property. So in South Africa, just to give you a bit of context, I've been looking at the making of a private city, and I focus on the landowner and the property developers and the kind of professionals around them that help them do their job. So when I started off, like I was saying, I was invisibilizing a couple of things here and there. 
But as I continue doing it over the last one year, I feel like I've become clearer as I seem to work through the rungs of the corporate, uh, the company here. And I state very clearly that I study wealth inequality with a focus on elites. And I feel I do it also because I'm in the most wealth unequal country in the world. And it's surprising, many a times when you say wealth inequality, you feel like the mic will drop, but it doesn't because it doesn't resonate with them at times. At times it does and it gives you very interesting kind of reflections from their side, which I think is valuable to have. So what you bring in terms of both your politics and in terms of what you choose to visibilize also attracts a particular kind of response. So I feel like when Perry is speaking and she's telling us about, you know, of course she was angry and fuming and she knew what was happening in terms of education and inequality. And then she took a step back and she saw many other things. So I feel like the exercise, the experiment and method has been to be very clear about why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I feel it's also because I'm placed in a center where most of our work is around labor and constantly around dissemination. You have stakeholders from, you know, the, either if it's the gig economy, you'll have workers come over and there will be a round table. I feel like, of course, it's naive to expect that from our end of the spectrum. But somewhere one also wants them to read what you're writing, right? Um, so I think that's my politics around ethics and what I choose to reveal. I think this is really interesting. And I think one of the points, Perry, what you were talking about is that kind of reflective process as researchers on the uncomfortabilities of doing this work. So like you were saying, the surprises that you found within your data, but then also reflecting on that and still thinking, okay, this is a production of class struggle. So part of my thinking of doing this research or doing field work was having and this is based upon recommendations from other sociologists, is having a reflective journal. So reflecting on your work and thinking about that and how we engage with these types of risks. It still feels, even though my field work wasn't realized because of the pandemic, I don't think I'm outside of reproducing power, legitimizing power or legitimizing transhumanism because it's an imaginary that has a stake in being academic. It wants to be scientific. so. I'm always engaging with the tension of reproducing their ideas as well. So I'm interested in these ideas of care as well and giving care to your subject, because that feels at times very challenging for me with my feminist politics. So allowing that to have a, a space within my work as well. I think that's something that's always felt very challenging to me. I think this is part of the risk, This is, from my personal experience, this is part of a risk of kind of taking a stance on an issue that you research. And this has always been an ongoing issue for me, whereas I've kind of always very kind of staunchly taken this this position of republicanism. And then that kind of feeds into various, you know, various different aspects of that. And I'm not saying I don't, I do think that, right? I do think we shouldn't have a monarchy. But there's also something then that kind of influences the way that you research and how you research. And also, of course, you know, I do a, a bit of media work and I'm kind of very Republican in those reports and that of course you know all the work you do feeds into your research and feeds into the way you analyse um, so I think thinking about these different areas of research as well and how we might articulate our research into different audiences and different places and different spaces and how you know they might contradict each other but they can kind of contradict each other in quite helpful ways sometimes almost so you kind of in, it's like having another voice kind of informing that research coming from a slightly different position just a quick one to add to what uh, Laura just talked about uh, in terms of our own politics and that's what we've all been talking about uh, but also in my case 
I was also mindful that I was re doing research with a, uh, you know, people in a different context, uh, uh, but also they are in, the, in the, the global south as opposed to the global north. So I was also very wary of actually applying uh, a, theoretical uh, a theoretical kind of framework that has been de developed from the global north onto people that are in global south. That in itself is an ethical issue to, to some degree. And, uh, you know, because I, I use Bourdieu, as I as I've already explained, and but Bourdieu is a, is a, you know, and, and with the issues around the, 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 the extent to which, you know, it's appropriate to research people in the global South African uh, con context, more specifically, and applying in on your al analysis, looking at that problem from a very Western lens. So that was a little bit of a challenge for me. So I consciously uh, deliberately look for another theoretical perspective framework that will help me on you know so that i'm not kind of uh, exporting uh, because we are trying to push away from that anyway so that's where fanon came into to being because bodio was useful but very uh, it has its own limitation uh, so again i think that that was one of the things i also had to grapple with and i thought to what extent am I, is my, con the conclusions that I'm, you know, coming to influenced by the actual theoretical kind of ontological position and, and kind of field that I, that I am situated within. And then that's interesting because that in itself is a power relation. And then you're into, you're into, you know, you're researching the powerful in a different context, but you are yourself positioned within a particular power relation within a different part of the world. So there's kind of all of these, that push, that push and pull that's kind of constantly going on. Um, in terms of different people's different positionality within that study. What Emily was saying in terms of, you know, as a reflective process and keeping a diary, which we all do as researchers, and Laura, about you bringing in your point about your ideological position and how that comes in when you are interacting with the field or the material that you're collecting. I feel like through all of this research, I, and especially the diary writing, the process has also been to account for the sub, you know, we study others and their subjects, but in the process we are also made into subjects. And that subject making over the course of research, if it stays the same, if it shifts, if it makes us, you know, reach out to other kinds of theorists who help account for the complexities of the grounds that we are researching, I feel like that's the highly enjoyable process of it, the process of some, almost like a transformation, right? Not to overstate it by any accord, but also realize that this is what I was thinking, this is what I felt about myself, this is how I presented myself, but wait a minute, so much has shifted. Um, and so that's something I thought of. And about the politics of care, my gosh, it's exhausting. I mean, as an outsider here in South Africa, I feel like for all of these white men, I seem to hold space for them, for their apartheid nostalgia. And I don't want to do that, right? So how much of that politics of care do you want to extend? Where do you want to cut them short? It's complex. Yeah, Gijita, I think that's a really nice point about community. And I think that connecting scholars who do study up or study power or elites has been really rewarding for me because find, I feel there's a lot of invisibilities and silences around this kind of research in institutional settings of trying to do this and the struggles. So having a community where you can share ideas and talk about these risk struggles and yes, the burden of care as well, I found has been really rewarding experience because 
when I started thinking about doing partial covert observations, most of the sociological literature I was reading was more or less like, don't do it. You know, it's too risky. It's not an approved way of doing a method. So it was hard to find the space to explore these kind of methods and justify them as well. And it took a lot of time. And I feel actually the time it takes to do research that studies the powerful is perhaps taking for granted when you're a doctoral student. Um, So, for example, the deadlines that expected to be met, well, I found that studying the powerful is a slightly slower process because there isn't the institutional um, support for studying elites. Yeah, actually, I absolutely agree with you, Emily, and 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 uh, you, Jithra, when you talked about you know the, the, the this white male uh, that you're studying and and they kind of using you to kind of see you as a kind of a opportunity to talk about the the, the the past and the colonial times or whatever it is that they, you know, but I, I I the burden of care or I I don't necessarily want us when I I think maybe that is another podcast where we kind of unpack this idea of 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 care to what extent you know the the, the typical uh, conventional ethics is we should put the care of our participant is central to our research but as we all, all of us kind of acknowledge when you know those principles those ethical principles when they when, when they are saying those they, 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 there's an assumption as Laura stated at the beginning that you know we are going to be researching those that are powerless those that are down trodden and, and 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 you know disadvantaged but in our case that is not the, that is certainly not the, the picture we are studying the very very powerful and we are the supplicant in that kind of relationship with you know uh, research and researcher rela- uh, researched and researcher relationship so the care for me is not like be, uh, to be sympathetic and all of that because they don't need that from us it's just that i'm i'm guided by this ethics of respect that bira talks about and and be it uh, one of the ways i kind of interpret that is that apply different lens don't be you know if you don't and we've all agreed that reflexivity is in this case is very good stepping back and looking at the data so that you do true justice to it and i think our findings and our conclusions are stronger for that but in terms of the uh, uh, this kind of care i think what the conventional ethics ethical principle is failing and what universities they have to do more especially for those of us doing research in the elites is kind of uh, ethics uh, the care to our own self you know uh because i don't know about you that kind of care of, of for the self and uh, of the researcher because it's kind of it can be emotionally draining uh but i'm not trying to kind of generalize it but from my own experience just interviewing these parents and listening to them to, uh, to being derogatory to blacks to Af- uh, nigerians I can tell without intentionally not knowing what the what what the what about our what they are saying, how it comes across in terms of that sense and kind of awe of whiteness and Britishness. That's that kind of belief that British whiteness is literally is synonymous with excellence and all of that, and and that translates to a British teacher. The fact that you're British and white automatically the assumption is that you are an excellent teacher you're a wonderful teacher 
you are a good teacher and all of that and when they talk about nigerian teacher oh you know useless and all of that so ask the, the person who i need their you know i'm do, carrying out a research i need them in my research of course i try to ask them and draw their attention to certain kind of points that they are making. Why would they think that and why do they think that and all of that? But I tend to, I leave that with a burden, a burden of, you know, there is one, on the one hand, you're fighting against racism that is actually targeted by, supposedly by, or, or often by uh, those who, who are white and you are black. Then you see people who are black, who are Nigerian, talking very down about Nigerian blackness more generally and then you go away thinking you know it's just sometimes i just feel ang always i was always angry when i left those interviews but the conventional there's no space how do you manage that uh, it, it, when you're doing research methods or, or the textbooks there is no body that i've actually dis explained how to manage that and how to kind of care that kind of you know the social <laughs> and the, the kind of emotional and mental burden that one goes through and i think there's an assumption built into the research and built into research ethics so in particular around voice i thought that was really interesting what you were saying like that you know in our research we want to give our participants voice like that's the whole point of research and of course in some cases that is um, you know, if we're if we're studying disadvantaged communities, but in I think with studying elites, in some ways that's the last thing you know. In some cases, that's the last thing we want to do because they're kind of they are powerful and their ideologies are dominant, and they kind of don't need to speak back in quite the same way. And I think that's a real like, ethical dilemma in terms of you know us as researchers and what we need to afford our participants versus what we want to protect. Um, and what we, you know, how we want to position our research within that particular field, and and how those two things don't go together, and also how university procedures don't protect us for that. I don't think they kind of don't understand that. There's still this very, you know, traditional, ver you know, understanding in ethics procedures, for example, around that you'll you'll be studying, for want of a better word, that you'll be studying down rather than studying up, and, and how that might affect your findings and the voices that you centre and so on. Laura, before I get to the university and how it doesn't facilitate the kind of work we do, I feel I absolutely resonate with Perry around the burden one feels um, in these kind of settings where power is, of course, not in your favor, and yet you have to, uh, to some extent, uh, of course, one can limit how much of it, um, have to hold space for conversations which you know uh, predictably where it's going to run. Um, and yet I feel in the conversations which are more long drawn, after the obvious is stated, you also find vulnerabilities <laughs> exposed and you also find so many ways in which they contradict themselves, yet they don't see it. And so it's a whole circus, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, it, with different shades of it. Uh, but I think, uh, going back to the point what Emily was saying in terms of a community, this feels like this conversation feels like one in that direction. Definitely, extremely exhausting, um, having to listen. Uh, also, depending on one's positionality, right? Um, around the ethics point and the university, Laura, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think ESRC for you guys there does not require you to get. Um, signatures from your respondents as long as you're doing a recording. Um, for us, it's not the case here at 
University of Witwatersrand. Definitely, if you go through the ethics process, you, uh, the assumption is you're studying there, um, and also that they are vulnerable. Also, they expect you to get consent form signed, um, which, uh, I mean, part of the reason, at least with the professional class, I feel, you know, drawing on Ostrander's work where you can clearly state what you want to do, give them a whole write-up, and then, the, you know, they'll sign what they need to sign. But for the 0.1%, getting signatures from them, I'm still struggling, and I'm close to wrapping up my field. So, uh, yes, this is what the university requires. I have no idea how to deliver it. I was this in the same position as you when I did my PhD, and, and one of the things that was the ethical code that I had to is consent, obviously, but written consent. And like you, uh, my participants, few of them signed, very few. Most of them was like were like, how, you know, how dare you ask me to sign, kind of, uh, you know. Right. One mother said to me, uh, she said, the fact, are, are you saying I can't trust you? I was trying to explain benefit of our signing in terms of, you know, showing that she gave consent and all of that. And she was indignant that I did, you know, like, have I let you into my room? Is that not enough consent? Kind of like she couldn't, right. you know, again, I was interviewing again. There's a different culture in the sense that if, and, you know, she, she did say, I've let you into my house. That is enough consent. So because luckily I was recording so I got recorded consent, kind of said in my that I, that had to to suffice because I can't hold them and make sure that they do sign. And then those that didn't sign, uh, what do you do? Do you not use their data after you've collected? In fact, some of them didn't bother to read information sheet. In terms of my parents, I got them. It's difficult to get elite uh, participants, as we all know. And there were different ways I, I managed to get them. I went through elite schools, so I made contact with elite schools. A uh, few of them then posted my advertising. I, I wrote a, a, a flyer for them, and they kind of sent it to pa parents, but telling parents, if you want to, if you're interested, contact parents directly. So I used them. I used also... Um, uh, education consultant uh, consultancy ag uh, agencies uh, for to get so I use different means of getting access, uh, but also as you as you perhaps appreciate with elites, perhaps with uh, any research, but specifically with elites. In my case, that when it comes to access, there are different stages of access. There is access to the to the community first and in my case as i said i got them through schools and all of that and when you get access and then you get parents who come back and say okay i'm happy to talk to this person you find find their address and they tell you when to come where to come to in my case when you get to those uh, if, if it's their office most times it's their houses and there's again access issue whereby the gate person may not allow you in if you get there and the gate person your name has not been put down that the the person is expecting you you're you're not let into the into the property right uh access you know so, got, so those are another layer of access that one has to get through then finally in my case when you get into and sit with that participant there is also issue of still access in the sense that you know you you, you get them some may just say a few words you cannot get what you want from them they are just yes. giving you monotonous ex uh, 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 kind of so that again is access so access is you know it's not as we know the fact that you've been said okay i will take part that that is not access is layered is different stages and 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 it is continuous in that sense and for me when i finally get to the parents i was open I, and i that's how i got m 
most of the 90 percent of the parents is through that kind of snowballing uh, uh, sampling kind of framework whereby if you if it went well they are more happy they are relaxed and then they will say oh don't worry i'll you know they will recommend somebody that will talk to me so so yeah so that is an, an interesting part of uh, access to to elites but also the that issues around whether they sign consent form or not. If you if if I become difficult and I insist that they sign, I can promise you they would not even recommend me. They would just ask for whoever to come and throw me out. I just mm. went with okay, thanks, ma or thank you, sir. That's how it ended most times and you know, ended. Yeah, I was going to try and get consent from the event organisers or what I would call the gatekeepers and the speakers. And part of trying to get consent, I didn't feel that they should automatically be anonymous um, because also they might not want to be as well. If they're speaking at an event, they're very likely that they might want to account for what they might say at these events. So getting sort of a a consent form that I felt comfortable with or that would also, like you're saying, would grant access or not challenge access to these events felt really tricky and it, and it was part of multiple revisions I went through with the ethics board at my institution and my university as well. So the I feel, Perry, what you're saying is also how this consent form also becomes part of this um, challenge to get access as well or can end up refusing access and I felt a bit aware of that as well that simply by trying to get consent to these events I could then actually just be refused entry completely. I mean I think this has been a really useful conversation I think there's lots more we could say I think and I think we can see you know now more and more of us are doing this research there's there's some interesting kind of angles that we haven't really thought of and that I think lots of kind of old you know research procedures don't necessarily take into account uh, that we're kind of experiencing as we do them um, and we're, we're you know we're getting into the risk of them as we do them um, and then hopefully more of these conversations will allow us to kind of have more procedures in place I suppose so we kind of can share experiences. So thank you so much everyone for joining that was a really interesting conversation. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the global power of the British monarchy. Guest executively produced by Laura Clancy. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.